The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. Good morning, everybody. Hong Kong delays a debate on a controversial extradition bill as thousands of demonstrators take to the streets to protest against the proposed law. China's factory inflation slows, but consumer inflation hits its highest level in 15 months as food prices jump. The Dow, meanwhile, snaps a six-day win streak as President Trump defends his tariff strategy whilst the top economic advisor Larry Kudlow tells CNBC the U.S. economy will grow at a fast clip, even without a China trade deal. I think we're still going to maintain a 3% growth pace uh, this year. You know, on the China point, uh, and the president has said a couple times in recent days that he certainly hopes to meet with President Xi uh, at the G20. Plus, the Goldman Sachs CEO, David Solomon, telling CNBC exclusively that the market won't like it if President Trump continues to weaponize tariffs for his own political gain. The issue that's, that's just interesting here that investors are wrestling with is the president is using tariffs for a broader agenda than just trade. And I think as that agenda broadens, it gives investors, you know, some concern. And at this hour, Tesla says it has a decent shot at a record quarter and that a 400-mile-range car could be a reality soon. Huawei tells CNBC it's scrapping the launch of a new laptop as a result of being blacklisted by Washington. And the U.S. began the defense of the Women's World Cup with a record-breaking 13-0 victory over Thailand. Good morning, you lovely people. Thank you very much indeed for joining us. If you're listening on the podcast, thank you very much indeed for joining us a little bit later on as well. Look, there are lots of questions going around at the moment uh, about inflation. And I'm delighted to tell you all that in a couple of minutes time, we've got someone who wrote a seminal piece on inflation in 2015 called The Truth About Inflation uh, joining us. That's Paul Donovan of UBS as well. But ahead of that, let, you, let me just give you some of my big questions as well. And they start off as ever these days with a tweet. A tweet from the president saying we have very low inflation. It's a beautiful thing. Is it? Very simple question. Is it a beautiful thing having very low inflation? And what inflation measures, my second question, are we supposed to be using? Because yesterday we had the, the PPI data, uh, which showed a very tiny increase in inflation. Then you look at the core figure a little bit more, and you look at the core core, which is stripping out all kinds of volatility, a little bit more inflation. So which figure should we be looking at? So one, is low inflation a beautiful thing? Two, which figure should we be looking at? And three, have you seen what's going on with Chinese inflation? Well, you should have done because Jeff just mentioned it in the headlines as well. And the fact remains that food price inflation, primarily led by an huge increase in pork, and we know why, because of all kinds of terrible things going on in the pork food chain in China, plus, plus fresh fruit prices going through the roof in China as well, has led to a staggering increase in food prices, and that has led to a headline inflation increase at the consumer level, as Jeff mentioned. What does that mean more broadly? Again, We've got that expert on inflation who wrote the truth about inflation. Still an Amazon top seller, I can tell you, uh, coming up in a few minutes' time. Net-net, though, the markets did zip yesterday, which uh, is very interesting because we've had a, a huge 
rally to the upside on these US indices. Six days straight of rallies led by tech and consumer discretionary. Uh, consumer staples was the sector that led higher yesterday. Okay, here we are on the Asian indices. Hang Seng down 1.7%. Shanghai Composite down 0.6%. Opening calls for European markets look like this. We are lower across the board. So, so much to look at. I know we're going to pop out to Hong Kong in a few moments' time. We've got that big chat on inflation coming up. But yes. ahead of that, we were talking about Dassault Systems yesterday. And yes, the problem were. with Dassault Systems is that they're such a good company in Europe that, that there isn't many others to choose from. And yeah. the fact is they've had a huge rally, big price, but do they justify it? Uh, well, obviously, um, Van Arshale is now trying to find other avenues to expand into at the moment. And we, we've talked a lot about Dassault Systems as a CAD business, computer-aided design. And then they moved into product lifestyle management, which took them in a new direction. And now they're following a trend that I think, I think we see in other markets, um, life sciences and the analysis of metadata. And so what they're doing is they're acquiring a business here uh, that that is called uh, Medidata and the name pretty much explains what's going on inside the business. They manage uh, back office uh, software systems for clients. They deal with large amounts of data. They're obviously involved in uh, analysis of patient data and so forth. The deal is uh, an all-cash transaction. It's priced at $92.25 per share. The company says they're going to complete this in the final quarter of uh, 2019. The uh, let me give you the line. I always love it the way companies describe this. Dassault Systems and Metadata Solutions to join forces to accelerate the life sciences industry innovation for patient-centric experience through end-to-end -end collaborative platform. And you, you pointed out, you know, over the years we've talked to Bernard Chalet a lot and we've looked at the way that this business has developed. And I think, again, this is a way that the company has found a sweet spot in the health diagnostics area. And we've seen a lot of companies who've strayed into this area, like Philips, of course, they've gone big on this. But increasingly, I think people are recognizing there are a lot of opportunities in the way that you manage patient information. Two industries coming together where there's been huge disruption. You think about biotech and big pharma. It's been a very expensive process to go through clinical trials. And one of the big hopes now with big data is that you minimize the 10-year process and you minimize the costs of getting new drugs to market. So having systems like this is seen as very positive. What Dassault has been doing when you start to combine the two, they've been helping with this digital transformation story. Companies have a lot of data, they haven't known what to do with it. And now as they start to crunch the numbers, they come up with better solutions. It's positive revenue and cost side and meeting you know, services that people actually want. Yeah, but this is, a, this is a metaphor for beyond me. I mean, look, everything you guys have said is true. Chalet, great. Looking for expansion. Uh, loads of expansion in these areas as well. I, I can't disagree. Great European company. What I'm saying to our viewers is in th on the 30th of June 2014, this was a 47 euro stock. It is now three times the price with a 60 times trailing valuation. Price for growth. You guys out there, you ladies and gentlemen, have to ask yourselves a question. How much are you prepared to pay for this stuff? And what does it do to the symmetry for the risk reward? I.e., you need some pretty good numbers to keep justifying those big valuations. Let's move on. Uh, Chinese factory inflation slowed in May, easing from a four month high in April. However, CPI is the figure that's caught the eye. Uh, quickest pace in over a year. Supply issues in pork and fresh fruit prices hit. Uh, Eunice joins us with plenty more. Eunice, always a pleasure to see you. Good morning.
Good morning. You know, the question that people are asking here is, do you have Apple freedom? This is what they're asking. And by that, they mean, uh, are you rich enough to be able to afford to go into a grocery store and buy an apple anytime that you want? And increasingly, for many Chinese, the answer is no. And that's because the prices of certain foods, fruits among them, um, are rising higher. And that pushed up overall consumer inflation today. So the May numbers met expectations, but increased at the fastest pace since February of 2018. Producer prices, as you guys were talking about, um, hit consensus as well, but they were falling because of weakness in metals. And overall, inflation isn't really seen as a major problem for China's policymakers. But the food prices are something that they are going to be watching very closely and likely for the rest of the year because uh, food makes up about a third of the CPI. But the industry is being hit on uh, several different fronts. First of all, frosty weather at the end of last year impacted harvests of certain fruits, uh, such as cherries, as well as um, as, as um, apples and pears. The African swine fever is ravaging the local pig population, and that's expected to continue to push pork prices up higher. And finally, a caterpillar, this is called the fall armyworm, has been detected in the country's south. And it hasn't made its way up to the northern provinces, which is uh, where all the corn is being produced in China. But it's still something that the authorities here are watching very closely. And of course, all of this is happening when China is trying to uh, fight off a trade war and boost consumption. So it's something that uh, they're likely to be um, concerned about, um, and uh, though it d- could potentially pose a possible opportunity for a lot of the food producers of the world. So overseas, they might be eyeing the Chinese market and saying this could be something potentially good for them. But at the same time, uh, you know, there's that whole thing called the trade war. And so uh, that could potentially get in the way. Eunice, thank you very much for that. Uh, Meantime, let me just flag up to you what's on the calendar. U.S. inflation is the key item that we're looking forward to today. May CPI is expected to soften slightly to 1.9% year on year, so just below that 2% threshold. Markets are looking for any sign that could shift expectations for a a Fed cut, so it's all about timing today. Uh, the expectation, of course, is that it's going to slow, isn't it, this uh, key U.S. inflation number. Paul Donovan is with us. He is chief global economist at UBS Wealth Management. Paul, good morning to you. Good morning. Uh, just, uh, I mean, Steve uh, was heaping praise upon your opus on inflation. Yep. Just give us a line on this. Why is inflation Ooh, continuing to that. ease uh, even as we uh, look for signs of a pickup? And the employment numbers, whilst they weren't great, they don't indicate that we need to be worried really about the pickup in uh, jobs growth. So what we've got, um, and we can capitalise this, is very normal inflation. On any inflation measure in the United States, no matter what detail you're looking at, whether you're looking at the trim mean, the harmonised, the PCE deflator, the core, the headline, they are all around their 20-year averages. Now, you get noise around this. You get lots of technical factors. At the moment, we've got um, quality adjustment, the fact that broadband speed apparently is faster in the United States than it has been in the past. That lowers inflation. I haven't noticed faster broadband speed in the United States, but apparently it's happening. So what that does is you get these technical noises, which we move as 0.1 up, 0.1 down. It doesn't matter. The broad story is you've got normal inflation. It's in line with the long-term averages. There's nothing to worry about here. Is it, um, you say 20 years, that doesn't seem like a, a big enough time frame to really work out how long is long long term i mean the the so, issue surely is that the last 20 years have been unusual 
in terms of the size of debt that governments, corporates and households have been prepared to manage. And surely that's part of the reason we're not seeing inflation. Well, no, the 20, last 20 years have actually been normal by historical standards. The abnormality was the 70s and the 80s, after uh, President Nixon ended his price and wage controls and we had extraordinarily high inflation in the 1970s. And that created inflation uncertainty, inflation risk, and it basically took, I mean, you know, the, the Volcker shock, you know, that, that Steve, yes. I'm sure, remembers from his 30s. Yes. Um, the Volcker shock in the early 1980s, that <laughs> led to this gradual reduction in inflation, but it took 20 years to get it down. By the time we get into uh, the 1990s, we're back to the more normal, traditional levels of inflation. And that's basically where we are. Now, no central banker is going to tell you we can hit inflation exactly to the decimal point. Basically, if you're 1% above or 1% below your target, you've hit your target because there's so much noise in inflation. So, you're there. Um, I'm, I'm just looking at a, a chart of... And, and I, I, well, you're absolutely right. I do remember 1980s inflation. I remember 1970s inflation as well, although I was a little bit younger than Jeff. Um, um, but but my, my point here is you've got this 20-year average on inflation, but you haven't got a 20-year average on unemployment as no. well. And I, I'm guessing it was somewhere between 6 and 7% the 20-year average. I'm just looking at a chart over the last 20 years, and it looks like that is somewhere near the mean. No. Why is that relationship still not coming through? Will it ever come through? Is it, there, all these, I mean, Karen talks a lot about technology as well. Is, is there something that is going to ever get, mean that the Phillips curve is back in a meaningful fashion? Well, it is sort of back, actually. So the thing is, the Phillips curve doesn't actually measure price inflation versus unemployment. It measures wage inflation. Exactly. And what we have been seeing is a pickup in wages. Now, there was a structural change. In fact, there were a couple of structural changes. We get the decline of unionisation which is a big, big shift that takes place from the 1980s onwards. But we also get the rise of self-employment. Now, this is where things get really messy. Yeah. Because if you are self-employed, you don't give yourself a wage increase. You give yourself a dividend payment because you're a one-person company. And so that doesn't then show up in the wage data. It shows up in the profits data. In other words, the data is, is actually reflecting labor costs less and less. And one more question for me, sorry. Uh, just about this Chinese inflation story today. Um, obviously, huge oscillation on the back of foodstuffs and units just chucking in the trade war as well. Yeah. Um, the imported or exported Chinese deflation has been a factor that people have talked about the last 10 years or so as well. Yep. Is that now going to switch to exported inflation rather than deflation? Uh, no, because we didn't have exported deflation, and no, because China we doesn't... We didn't have exported deflation. We didn't, deflation. no. I mean, it China felt like we did. It felt like we did, but we didn't. Okay. If you look at the products that China sells to the rest of the world, the thing is, by the time China sold something, it's then got to be shipped, it's got to be marketed, it's got to be um, uh, uh, retailed around the world. You, basically, imported goods are mainly local labour costs. Um, the other thing is China doesn't sell sick pigs to the rest of the world. China's inflation is a problem if you like eating pork in China. It's a problem if you're a pig in China. It is not a problem for the rest of the world. What is a problem for the rest of the world is what happens with the US dollar and as a result what happens with Fed policy and the market's been pricing its assumption for a rate cut maybe in July, the 80% chance now of easing taking place then if not maybe in September and many market watchers are saying well if you get a Fed rate cut do you get some movement in the US dollar that is lower? Mm. Many people who now crunch the numbers say there's no guarantee mm. that the US dollar does in fact move lower if there's a rate cut. What do you make of what's baked into markets for the Fed and the likely ramifications for the trading action? So the, the one really reassuring thing is markets are absolutely useless at forecasting the Fed. <laughs> absolutely <laughs> appalling. 
I mean, worse even than TV anchors. They just don't get it right. <laughs> what any about of economists? The time. No, economists are always perfect. They're perfect. We have perfect okay, okay, just so we know. Yeah. But well, so, where's the pecking order then? So it, 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 it's economists, TV anchors, then the market, yeah? Economists, the rest of humanity, TV anchors, <laughs> and the market, yes. OK, thank you. So what we've, what we've got at the moment is a situation where the, the Fed and the markets aren't communicating properly because the Fed's sitting there and saying, you know what, the economy's fine. There isn't a low inflation problem. Unemployment's extremely low. We're seeing you know, a perfectly normal economy. And the market's saying cut rates, cut rates, because the bond market's lower lip is wobbling. Um, I don't think we're going to get rate cuts. I think if you were going to see a rate cut, it doesn't automatically influence the dollar because you've got to think about if the Fed has been pushed to the point where it's actually easing policy, what the hell is going on in the US economy and what's going on in the global economy to get the Fed to that point. And so that creates a whole mess of uncertainty around how the dollar would react in those circumstances. Uh, we'll come back, Paul. Thanks very much indeed for that for the moment. Uh, if you just can't get enough of uh, Squawk Box, let me just point out there is a podcast that covers the programme. Uh, you can go to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast to listen and download today's episode. And for our listeners, stick around for more. Two proxy advisory companies are reportedly urging clients to vote against the reappointment of Nissan's CEO Hiroto Saikawa at the Japanese carmaker's upcoming AGM. Reports say advisors Glass-Lewis and Institutional Shareholder Services will oppose Saikawa. The firms believe he cannot properly oversee company directors following a financial misconduct case involving the former Nissan chairman, Carlos Ghosn. Nissan has declined to comment on the report. Tesla shares rose 3.5% in extended trade yesterday after the CEO, Elon Musk, told investors it's not suffering from a demand problem. Speaking at the carmaker's annual shareholder meeting, Musk instead insisted there is a serious chance Tesla will achieve a, quote, record quarter on every level. CNBC's Phil LeBeau filed this report. Shares of Tesla moving higher after hours following Elon Musk's comments as the CEO talked to shareholders at the Tesla annual meeting this afternoon in California. Two important notes from the meeting. Elon Musk says there is not a demand problem for Tesla vehicles. In fact, he says right now the company could achieve record deliveries in the second quarter. He did not commit that they will have record deliveries in the quarter, but he says it is a possibility. Also, in terms of long-term production, Musk says that the company's product cadence, in order, in other words, the vehicles that they roll out in the future, that will be driven by the company's ability to produce battery packs. And that ultimately, according to Musk, could lead Tesla to consider getting into the mining business in some capacity. He didn't expound on that, but it will be one of those topics that will get a fair amount of attention on Wednesday as shares of Tesla begin trading not only around the world, but also here in the United States. Phil LeBeau, CNBC Business News, Chicago. Mass protests have blocked all street access to Hong Kong's Legislative Council building and forced the postponement of a debate on a controversial extradition bill. These pictures, of course, will be very reminiscent of those we saw back in 2014 of the Black Umbrella movement. Uh, the umbrella remains a symbol of protest in Hong Kong. Let's get out to Sherry Kang, who joins us now with more. So, Sherry, just walk us through what happened here as a result of these protests. 
So it's interesting, Jeff, how you mentioned the umbrella movement back in 2014, because it's actually raining uh, pretty hard earlier today as well. So they actually had to get out their umbrellas. So uh, certainly reminiscent of what happened back then. And also some are actually drawing comparison to what happened back in 2003, where the Hong Kong government actually had to scrap uh, the uh, implementation of Article 23 national security law into law, of course, due to massive demonstration as well. The latest from Hong Kong is that, yes, thousands uh, of protesters basically paralyzed this area surrounding the Hong Kong Legislative Council, government complex as well, and the Legislative Council, which was supposed to debate over this, so kicking things off with the second reading this morning, actually decided to postpone the legislative debate. It's not very clear at this point whether this means it's a retreat, whether it's a temporary one or indefinite one, whether this is out of political consideration due to this massive protest or logistical issues, because a lot of uh, Hong Kong lawmakers seem to have uh, actually had trouble getting into the building this morning as well. So not a lot of clarity on that uh, decision. But one thing's for sure, there is that Certainly that fear over the potential erosion of one country, two systems. And uh, we've been seeing that growing discomfort among Hong Kong people. And uh, just to give you a bit of a color of what kind of paralysis that we're talking about here. Yes, this is really one of the biggest civil act action that we've seen since the handover uh, to the main uh, Chinese rule back in uh, 1997. And some of the banks, including uh, Bank of East Asia, Standard Chartered, HSBC, have announced that they decided to close nearby branch offices due to what they called disruption as well. Guys, back to you. Sherry, thank you for that. Sherry Kang joining us from Hong Kong. And we'll get back out there for an update a little later on. Paul Donovan is with us, chief economist at UBS uh, Global Wealth Management. Paul, was that um, Milton Friedman who said in, um, inflation is a monetary phenomenon? Yeah. Does that tell us the fact that we don't actually have challenging inflation for a lot of central banks globally? Does that indicate that actually monetary conditions are not loose enough? for the potential of economies where we have these low inflation numbers because it it seems to be the argument is still made by some that the destruction of capital that occurred 10 years ago and the subsequent tightness of liquidity has not actually been properly addressed well i mean i would argue that you what you've got is is relatively low stable predictable inflation i mean this is this is what success looks like if you're a central bank so they're maintaining the balance of money supply and money demand and remember yeah, printing money doesn't create inflation. It's printing too much money that creates inflation. So you've got to get the balance right. So what the Fed's been doing, of course, is gradually tightening policy, as it should, because as demand for cash has been fading, people are not hoarding cash under the mattress, they've reduced liquidity supply. Bank of England has been you know, quite quietly doing the same thing. The Bank of England's balance sheet's been falling as a share of GDP for some time now. The ECB is late to the game, but it's doing that as well. So I would argue that what we've got is, is actually appropriate policy, that you've got the right amount of liquidity in the system given liquidity demand, and that is signalled by stable that, inflation rates. What does rates. that mean briefly then for Fed hikes or cuts this year? So I think the Fed's on hold this year. Uh, I think they're going to stay as they are, but they will continue to tighten on quantitative policy. Remember, it's not just monetary policy, quantitative matters too. Okay, so late last month, thank you, Paul. Uh, last month, there was a chatter that uh, Axel Springer and KKR were in talks about a strategic investment 
um, that the P Group uh, could be interested in an offer for the company. Spring forward to today, no pun intended. Uh, and we have Axel Springer announcing, or KKR announcing, the launch of a public takeover offer on the basis of an investor agreement with Axel Springer. Uh, intends to launch a public takeover offer for uh, to all shareholders at an offer price of 63 euros per share. The shares closed yesterday, as you can see, at 56. But you can see the pop on the right-hand side of your screen, the pop when this became public late May, so the last week of May. Uh, sees revenues, though, the group saying decrease in low single-digit percentage range. So problems at Axel Springer. Um, talking about classified media at previous year's level uh, to an increase in low single-digit percentage range. Well. So the numbers aren't great over Axel Springer, but KKR launching what was expected to be uh, a takeover. Isn't it interesting how European media is suddenly in play. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Show Weekdays on CNBC.